On December 15, 1859, only two weeks after John Brown's hanging, a pro-Brown rally was held at the Cooper Union in New York City, organized by some of Brown's associates and supporters, such as the abolitionist Thaddeus Hyatt, the Reverend George Cheever, and the famous orator Wendell Phillips. The event was full of spark and fume because New York City in 1859 was largely unsympathetic to the cause of the slave and John Brown, who was widely disliked by conservatives and Democrats that supported slavery. Indeed, after the Harpers Ferry raid, many Democrats in the North were bending over backwards to appease the South, apologizing profusely for John Brown's actions and fervently promoting the cause of the Union, fearing as they did that the South was going to secede and take their profitable slave trade with them to the detriment of Northern business interests. In fact, anti-Brown's so-called pro-Union rallies were taking place in many cities of the North at this time, supposedly to express solidarity with the South. Although the pro-slavery leaders themselves were unflattered by these Union rallies, and many believed Northern Democrats were hypocrites, knowing that their real concern was maintaining the revenue of slavery to Northern banks and businesses. It took great courage, then, for these abolitionists to hold a pro-Brown rally in New York City, and almost half of the courageous Brown supporters, by the way, were women who attended this rally, according to the New York Daily Tribune. In a sense, this rally was the first organized effort to defend John Brown and promote his legacy as a hero of liberation, and also to apply that legacy to the larger narrative of the anti-slavery cause and the so-called impending crisis. This was especially notable in the case of Wendell Phillips, whose speech at the Cooper Union was fraught with interference and interruption from loud naysayers who booed, commented, and contradicted him as he spoke. Eventually, it seems that Phillips ended up in a series of exchanges with outspoken opponents in the audience who consistently interrupted him. However, at a key moment in his address, Phillips made a notable statement declaring that John Brown had, quote, given this nation a text, end quote. Phillips continued that Brown had lifted nine millions of people up to the discussion of a great question in morals. He has done more to educate the American people than our own statesman Daniel Webster in 40 years of public life, the orator concluded. Many in the crowd booed. But Wendell Phillips was correct, and in the longer arc of history, his words have proven to be true time and again. John Brown had indeed given this nation a text, although often it has been contradicted and even replaced with a false narrative imposed by reason of prejudice and ignorance. Of course, the 19th and early 20th centuries were filled with tributes to Brown, including songs, poems, and reverential salutations by men and women, white and black. More so, from time to time since the 19th century, some thoughtful writers have looked to John Brown, and more precisely, looked through him, as a kind of lens upon the questions of a historical, political, and even theological nature in the United States. Doubtless, there have been many such efforts, but in this episode, I will highlight two notable books from the 20th century that represent what Wendell Phillips spoke of in 1859 when he recognized that John Brown had indeed provided a text to this nation. From New York City, this is Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. The first and most familiar of the two works that I'm going to talk about today is John Brown, 
by W.E.B. Du Bois, which was published in 1909, when the famous black intellectual was 41 years old. Initially, Du Bois had wanted to prepare a biography of Frederick Douglass for a series called The American Crisis Biographies, edited by Ellis Oberholzer. However, Booker T. Washington, perhaps the leading black figure in the United States at that time, wanted to write his own biography of Douglass, and so Du Bois was denied the opportunity by his editor. Du Bois then told Oberholzer that he wanted to write a book about Nat Turner, the leader of the most famous revolt against slavery in antebellum Virginia. Oberholzer nixed the idea of doing the Turner book. As a result, Du Bois ended up writing his John Brown, a wonderful and lyrical interpretation of the abolitionist that is still being published today over a hundred years after its appearance in 1909. To be sure, Du Bois's biography is not without its problems, and I would not recommend that any student use it in terms of its factuality, although it is one of the most compelling and beautiful interpretation of Brown's life in print. The reason for the book's unreliability as to detail is that Du Bois was an academic, he did not have a lot of money or time, so he could not do any substantial research. And so he relied on conventional sources, some of which were fraught with errors and uncorrected ideas. As it happened, Oswald Garrison Villard, a white liberal civil rights activist and the grandson of William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist orator, had his own designs on writing the definitive John Brown biography at the same time, and his book was in preparation when Du Bois's biography was actually published. Villard had money enough to pay the journalist and author Catherine Mayo to do extensive field research in 1908 and 1909, and Villard's biography of Brown was published the year after Du Bois's book in 1910. Now, this is the story itself, and perhaps I will save it for another episode. Villard owned a couple of newspapers in New York City and unfortunately used his publications to print a harsh review of Du Bois's book in 1909, after which one of Villard's editors denied Du Bois an opportunity to respond. While Villard's book was based on exhaustive and priceless research and original documents, the superior nature of its factual content is not matched by a superior interpretation. Quite the opposite. Villard's book is deeply scarred by personal and ideological bias, so his thesis is unreliable. I use Villard's book often in my own research, but only as a reference work. Interestingly, too, Villard's book has never been republished in any significant reprint edition since he revised it himself in the 1940s. But if I want to reflect upon John Brown as a kind of text for the nation, I will always revisit the Du Bois biography. Now, the reason I'm including the Du Bois book is not because it is a biography, but rather because of the way that Du Bois includes reflections upon Brown's life and legacy to enable him to interrogate his own world and the crisis of racial injustice in the early 20th century. In fact, Du Bois did so twice. In concluding chapter 13, which is entitled The Legacy of John Brown, we have Du Bois's use of Brown as a text for the nation as he saw it in 1909. And when the book was republished in 1962, we have another use of Brown as a text, only from a changed perspective largely due to Du Bois' acceptance of Marxism and his view of the world as it was in the post-colonial era of the 1960s. The 1962 edition, interestingly, was published by the Communist Press International Publishers to commemorate the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation. When he wrote John Brown, Du Bois had not yet identified himself with socialism, a move that he reportedly made two years later in 1911. 
Du Bois remained a socialist for 50 years, but joined the Communist Party in 1961, only two years before his death. He had been tracked and harassed by the federal government from the 1940s. In the early 1950s, he had gone to trial with others associated with the left-wing Peace Information Center and had even run unsuccessfully for the Senate on the American Labor Party ticket. In 1951, when he wanted to attend the legendary anti-colonialist Bandung Conference, the government withdrew his passport, and he did not regain it until 1958. Du Bois joined the Communist Party in 1961, apparently to demonstrate that he was fed up with the policies of the United States government. Although he had probably become a communist for all intents and purposes before then, certainly Du Bois, despite his skillful use of religious language, was an agnostic, if not an atheist, whose resentment of the church seems enough for him to have set aside belief in religion almost altogether. Whether or not Du Bois retained any private religiosity, he certainly was not the man who had written, only a year after his John Brown was published, Prayers for Dark People, a collection of meditative prayers. This change in Du Bois's worldview is also evidenced in comparing the 1909 conclusion of John Brown with the 1962 edition. In the latter edition, Du Bois made minor adjustments in the final chapter, but mainly inserted an extended discourse that reveled in the rise of socialism calling the progress of communist Russia, quote, the greatest source of human rejoicing today, as well as the resurrection of China, as he put it, in its rush forward with unexampled speed and efficiency, end quote. Du Bois also discusses Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and the Communist Manifesto, capitalism, colonialism, and cites the role of the United States State Department in fighting socialism and communism. Throughout the 1962 interpolation, Du Bois repeatedly uses the phrase, all this John Brown did not know. He does this in order to link Brown with his Marxist reading of the abolitionist legacy. Now, my point is not to dismiss Du Bois because of his leftist thinking, but from the standpoint of a religious educator and sometime clergyman like myself, the distinction between socialism and Marxism is important because socialism is a perspective on economics, while Marxism is a worldview that entails socialism but also addresses social and ideological commitments and which is hostile toward theism. John Brown might very well have come to approximate a socialist view of economic justice had he lived longer, or perhaps a democratic socialist perspective. At least some of his Kansas associates did, such as the memorable Scottish-American editor John Swinton, who died in 1901, but who advanced the cause of labor in his later years. But I'm pretty sure that John Brown would never embrace an ideology that is inherently hostile to religious faith. We are quite aware, despite the liberal humanitarian sensibilities of our Marxist friends in the United States, that Marxists in other contexts are not so generous, and millions of religious people, including Christians, have died under Marxist rule. So with all due respect to W.B. Du Bois in 1962, John Brown may not have known about the developments of communism in the 20th century but neither did Du Bois foresee the failure of the same communism that he so regaled in his last days. To put it bluntly, Du Bois would have done better not to insert a Marxist update to his John Brown book in 1962, and he might have done better had he taken the pains to correct the errors of historical fact and detail that diminished his biography of Brown in the first place. Indeed, what is important about Du Bois's 1909 edition is that it is at its best in making a text for the nation out of John Brown. 
While the 1909 original also shows the leftward and secular tendencies of Du Bois, the original Legacy of John Brown chapter is purely his attempt to view his world refracted through the lens of Brown's story, while the 1962 insertions into the same chapter are as much a brief for communism as they are a kind of intentional political gesture made toward the United States from his desk in Ghana. To be sure, there's a genuine updating to Du Bois's knowledge of history having unfolded in the 1962 version. There's also an interesting paragraph in which Du Bois salutes Brown as a, quote, pioneer in the fight for human equality, end quote, while managing to indirectly allude to the titles of his early works, The Souls of Black Folk, 1903, and The Gift of Black Folk, 1924. But otherwise, the 1962 addition to the book is a yawning op-ed that is far less impressive today than it must have seemed in 1962. I'm not sure, but this may be why, when David Rodiger edited a version of Du Bois's John Brown from Modern Library Publishers in 2001, he stayed with the 1909 original. I would have done the same thing. As for that original, Du Bois's John Brown text for the nation is brilliant. Quote, was John Brown simply an episode, Du Bois asks, or was he an eternal truth? And if a truth, how speaks that truth today? Precisely. This is John Brown as a text for the nation. Du Bois observes Brown's concern for the poor and oppressed, a, quote, natural sympathy strengthened by a saturation in Hebrew religion, which stressed the personal responsibility of every human soul to a just God, end quote. Likewise, Du Bois observed the social doctrines of the French Revolution with its emphasis on freedom and power in political life had impacted Brown. That was his opinion. From this, Du Bois declares, Brown had concluded that, quote, the cost of liberty is less than the price of repression, end quote. Du Bois worried, too, that in the same year that John Brown had died, Darwinian evolution had been published, signaling a great scientific and economic advance. Yet, there were also, quote, distinct signs of moral retrogression in social philosophy. As he put it, the fostering of war and the utility of human degradation. Du Bois does not impugn Darwin here, but rather suggests that he and other moderns have been interpreted by others to promote inequality, the domination of weaker nations, and the supremacy of whites. Du Bois calls for a careful examination of these assumptions and declares that the doctrine of human equality passes through the fire of scientific inquiry, not obliterated, but transfigured as the rightful demand of mankind. Racial distinctions represent the antithesis of human equality, Du Bois concludes, and if the color line is permitted to continue, the, quote, price of repression will then be hypocrisy and slavery and blood. Has John Brown no message, no legacy then to the 20th century? He has, and it is this great word, the cost of liberty is less than the price of repression, end quote. The repression of black people and all colonized people around the world, quote, encourages wrong leadership and perverted ideas, end quote, and causes leaders in the struggle for freedom to be dismissed as mere demagogues. For such reasons, Du Bois concludes, John Brown stands today as a mighty warning to his country. John Brown taught us that the cheapest price to pay for liberty is its cost today. Let the nation which he loved and the South to which he spoke 
reverently listen again today to those words as prophetic now as then. Quote, You had better, all you people of the South, prepare yourselves for a settlement of this question. You may dispose of me very easily, but this question is still to be settled. This Negro question, I mean, the end of that is not yet. John Brown. Of course, Du Bois was right, for despite the great loss that the South endured in the war that shortly followed Brown's death, white supremacy had snatched power back and once more put the black community in a state of absolute oppression. The question was not settled, the question of white supremacy and racism, and it was not settled in Du Bois's time, and it still remains a question to be settled today. The second book that I'd like to highlight in this episode is not as well-known or appreciated as Du Bois's John Brown. Many of you may not even have heard of it. That book is Albert Freed's John Brown's Journey, Notes and Reflections on His America and Mine, published in 1978. I assume this book is out of print, but if you can find a used copy and you're interested in it after this description, do try to add it to your John Brown collection. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Freed for coffee back in 2007, I think it was, when he had an office at Columbia University, and I'm glad that I had an opportunity to express appreciation for his work. When his book was published in the late 70s, he was professor of history at the State University of New York and was a prominent spokesman for the left, he was already the author of Socialist Thought, a documentary history, published first in 1964 and then revised in 1993. Later in his career, Freed wrote some notable works like The Rise and Fall of the Jewish Gangster in America, 1993, McCarthyism, The Great American Red Scare, A Documentary History, 1997, and FDR and His Enemies, in 2001. John Brown's Journey may not be the best book ever written about the abolitionist, but I think I could say that it's the most unusual work that has ever been published. It is quite useful for researchers on John Brown besides providing a unique view of history. Certainly, I'd cite it as another example of Wendell Phillips's notion of Brown being a text for the nation, because Freed is using the John Brown theme not only reflectively on the past, but as a means of viewing his own generation and its crises. I would describe John Brown's journey as a hybrid, part bibliographical essay and part memoir, as it were, a man in the stacks at Columbia University's library surveying John Brown's biography and biographers while looking out upon the world of the Vietnam era in light of John Brown's story. Perhaps part of the reason this book is appealing to me is that I grew up at the tail end of the troubled 60s and radical early 1970s, so rife with controversy, protests, surveillance, war, and political upheaval, was part of my world too. Now, even though John Brown's journey is not a contemporary work, it is interesting because it provides insight upon two controversial periods, the antebellum period and the late civil rights era. It is, in the truest sense of the theme, an effort to bring John Brown into the 20th century, personally interweaving his times into the America of the author. It is a memoir with a scholarly shape. The origin of Freed's book can be traced to 1968, when he was a graduate student at Columbia University working on a dissertation about the history of American socialism. This was quite a dynamic and difficult moment in the history of the nation. There was war in Vietnam, which was ratcheted up by the draft, the excitement and controversies of the presidential race that eventually brought Nixon to the White House. There were the tragic assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. 
and protest movements against the war. The brief forward of the book tells it best. Freed writes, This book recounts an experience that occurred in the tumultuous years of the 1960s, telling how and why I became interested in John Brown, what I learned about him and his world, what conclusions I tentatively reached about his famous adventure, his astonishing leap into history. I have attempted to chronicle an act of understanding, the making of a picture, from the first sketch to the last, from the intimation of a portrait to the unfinished composition on canvas. Freed thus writes about reading about John Brown, and he makes insightful and interesting observations, beginning with the 1959 John Brown Reader, edited by the late great Rabbi Louis Rukames, which is still the best anthology on Brown for my money. Freed uses Rukame's John Brown Reader to begin his sketch of the abolitionist, interspersing his text with personal reflections, such as comparing his own austere Hebrew schoolteacher, a rigorous disciplinarian whom he calls, quote, a John Brown in black gabardine and skullcap, end quote, who also wore his sadness with dignity. By using Rukame's as a biographical guideline, Freed thus builds his house on a good foundation. He then proceeds to assay the John Brown bookshelf, beginning with James Redpath's 1860 Public Life of Captain John Brown, Sanborn's 1885 Life and Letters of John Brown, but in so doing he continues to interject his own perspective, from notes on articles in the press to personal experiences and observations. He continues covering biographies by Hinton, 1895, Du Bois's from 1909, and Villard's from 1910. He then essays hostile works on Brown, like John Brown, Soldier of Fortune, published in 1913 by the meretricious Hill Peebles Wilson, and the disappointing and biased John Brown, The Making of a Martyr, 1929, by the Southern sensation Robert Penn Warren, and what he calls, rightly, the elephantine John Brown and the Legend of 56, published in 1942 by James C. Mallon. In fact, I'm slowly reading through Malin right now myself, and it is, as Freed says, esoteric and narrowly specialized, a work by a Kansas scholar, as Freed recounts. Malin disliked Brown and is able to use his Kansas expertise to create an anti-Brown work that feigns scholarly integrity, even though the least reliable part of the book is what he says about Brown, and the best it offers is a scouring of Kansas sources in Brown's time. Freed writes that he set aside his John Brown manuscript for a period and he only picked it up again because he happened to mention it to his editor at Doubleday, who encouraged him to take up the work again in 1968. At this point, however, he begins to describe the apocalyptic mood, as he put it, of the year 1968 with its political upheavals, revolts, and assassinations, even as he was attempting to grasp the landscape of the nation in John Brown's time. He began to study the anti-slavery movement, and he writes at length about the social and political context of the nation in Brown's era, while bouncing off his own time. As Freed writes, John Brown had become as credible to me as his counterparts on the left were in 1967. Freed's intention was to have the book ready by 1970, but after he took a teaching job at Sarah Lawrence College and got caught up in the protest movement, he lagged in his writing. By then, however, more works on Brown and related issues had been published, which he dutifully read. 
yet he did not return to his John Brown manuscript until the mid-1970s. Freed concludes his book by describing how he returned one day, opening the drawer where he'd put all his John Brown notes and research several years before, and it struck him that the mound of papers and clippings were what he called an archaeological deposit, and this helped him shape his final idea for the book he intended to write, what he calls a history of that whole experience, that encounter with John Brown, that exigent moment in my own life, end quote. This was the story of his journey through two disparate worlds, end quote. So I like John Brown's journey. It's an original and unique work, and it's interesting, especially looking back from our vantage point in the 21st century. Still, even if one were to dispense with Freed's reflections on the controversial period of the 20th century that was his own time, he presents a substantial tour de force reading of John Brown literature. And even if I don't agree with all of his conclusions, I have found his review of John Brown books most helpful. It's a fine contribution. Unfortunately, but perhaps to no surprise, the most notable review that John Brown's journey received was negative and negative to the point of abuse. To no surprise, too, it was written for the New York Times by one of the then-reigning Lincoln High Priests, David Herbert Donald. In a review published on April 2, 1978, in the Times Book Review, Donald's reading of John Brown's journey, facetiously titled Mr. Freed's Journey, is extremely condescending and dismissive marking Freed's book as indicative of, quote, the age of self-exposure and calling it a collection of jottings and observations. While Donald admitted that Freed's review of John Brown literature was sometimes thoughtful and incisive, those are his words, he slams Freed for being ignorant of American history. Of course, Freed was not ignorant of American history, and the remark from Donald was more ad hominem than a legitimate criticism. In fact, Donald does not even offer any examples of Freed's alleged ignorance. Inevitably, too, Donald then zeroes in on Freed's treatment of the Pottawatomie killings of 1856, sounding dismissive and evidently eager to show Brown was a violent killer and nothing else. But my sense is that what got Donald upset and probably fueled this mean-spirited review was Freed's suggestion that Abraham Lincoln was John Brown's spiritual successor. This apparently offended Donald, because even though Freed said it was a speculation, it was just too much for Donald's Abraham Lincoln theology, which no doubt makes Lincoln the Alpha and the Omega and does not allow him to have any predecessor, let alone be John Brown's successor. And I tend to think what really got Donald's goat was that Freed then had the audacity as a young scholar in the 1970s to call Lincoln and the Republican Party on their racism. Donald thus tried to bury John Brown's journey as obscure and nothing to say. Those are his terms. A work that ultimately was written out of sheer contractual obligation, a book that ultimately revealed, quote, nothing, end quote. Now, as I've observed previously, it seems almost inherent within most Lincoln scholars as people to hate John Brown. Now, I'll exclude David S. Reynolds here although I confess not having yet read his latest Lincoln biography, which I'm sure is excellent, like all his work. As a great biographer of Brown first, I have no doubt that Reynolds has handled Lincoln fairly, and he has done so without bashing John Brown. But David Herbert Donald was a brilliant scholar and a prolific writer, 
yet the epitome of the Lincoln priesthood, having produced several notable works on the 16th president and standing in his generation as the high priest of the nationalist cult of Lincoln religion. His resentment of Brown ran deeply. To react vehemently against any suggestion that John Brown was in any sense a forerunner of their hero, in any sense a heroic figure himself, in any sense a man of great integrity and importance. You may not realize this, but in academic history publications, there are establishment gatekeepers too, and there's no temple so sacred in academic writing in American history as the Temple of Lincoln Adoration. To be sure, not all the gatekeepers are downright contemptuous of Brown as David Donald was, or contemporary Lincoln priests like Alan Gelso, nor is the point here that it is either or, that if you are for John Brown, you must altogether trash Lincoln. Of course not. The point is that the Lincoln priesthood does not want to admit that Lincoln was a racist, that Lincoln was the man that Frederick Douglass says he was, and that in regard to the black struggle, John Brown, however imperfect, was a real ally, while Lincoln was a latecomer, perhaps the latest to enter, even if he has been promoted by white society as a hero of liberation. We all know Lincoln being the hero of the Union was not the same as Lincoln being a liberator. We all know that Lincoln finally struck at slavery because it was the most powerful weapon left in his arsenal, and that he died with white priorities as he had lived. David Donald savaged Albert Freed's wonderful John Brown's journey because he was academically a reactionary protector of the Lincoln supremacy. His 1978 review was petty, dismissive, and condescending toward Albert Freed, a young scholar, and deeply malicious and malignant in its intent with regard to John Brown. Whatever else David Herbert Donald was as a scholar and as a man, in the very small space that was this review of John Brown's journey, he shows himself lacking kindness, lacking grace, and looking quite petty. As hard as the Lincoln set may try, they cannot obliterate the truth of Brown's historical and existential presence as a text for the nation. In 100 years, if this nation still stands, writers will reflect on John Brown's life and times. They will draw strength and insight from his legacy, and they will use the light of his witness as a spotlight upon their own times. John Brown really is a text for the nation. From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this was John Brown Today.